welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Pastor Steve of Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you allow the presence of the comforting Holy Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to Pastor Steve. We are in Healing Sunday, and I uh, there are people that are going to be tuning in literally from all over the nation and the world, uh, because I've announced to a, a couple of select groups of people that I was going to do something this morning that is not really my normal thing. This uh, you guys will all understand, I guess, and I I feel like I say that more often lately than I ever have in my life, which means that I don't think I really have a normal anymore. Hallelujah. And all the people clapping don't even really like me because I, I I always want to, what I want on my, I'm not even going to have a tombstone. If I was to have a tombstone, which I won't have because me and mom are going to live forever. Um, yep, I'm one of those guys. Um, if I had a tombstone, I would want on it John chapter 6 where Jesus said, I do always those things that please the Father. Here lies Steve who did always those things that please the Father. And I find the more that I embrace that and I allow that to take place in my heart, the more awkward my life becomes. I, which is, I think, kind of cool. <laughs> it should be adventurous. You are going to need a double-edged sword, which is the Word of God, because I'm going to cover some scriptures. So if you did not bring a Bible, we would love to give you one. And this Bible, we will even let you keep it. Because we think that the most terrible thing that you could do is go throughout life defenseless, weaponless. And so we have a weapon here for you if you don't have one. So please raise your hand and one of these amazing ushers will give you a Bible that you can keep. If you want Pastor Bob to sign it later, uh, he'll sign it. And then it'll be uh, twice as anointed. Nobody? Anybody? Everybody has a Bible? All right, good, praise God. All right, if you have a Bible app, you are in the flesh. No, I'm okay with your electronic devices as long as you are honoring God with your device. I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that some of you, while you have your Bible open, aren't texting somebody. That's too bad. Hebrews. Chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we are picking up on what is being annotated by the author of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul, but it's irrelevant. It's the Holy Spirit. That he started in chapter 1, developed a little bit more purposeful language in chapter 3, and the entire theme of Hebrews covers this. The epistle of Hebrews, which, by the way, the word epistle, which means letter or writing, is also the word that we get the 
Greek word epistole, T-O-L-E, and the Greek word epistole is the Latin word for science. So when I said back there, trust the science, that our world doesn't realize they're actually telling you, trust the letters, the epistles. <laughs> Amen. Some of you will get that later, I guess. <laughs> I thought it was great. The Lord makes me laugh about stuff that obviously you don't laugh about. <laughs> the concept here is what, uh, what the writer is referencing as rest. Rest. Rest is a synonymous term with the finished work of the cross, with walking in, being in salvation... There's a lot of different terminology for this, but they all point towards the same thing. So when the the author of Hebrews is talking about resting, this was also the spiritual endpoint of what the type and shadow of the Exodus was meant to reference. In the Exodus, they were leaving slightly... Someone told me I was going to be in the spirit. I said, I don't want to be drunk in the spirit while I'm trying to minister. She's like, hey, hey, hey. That's Deb. That's what happens when a redhead prophesies to you. When they were... Dropping people. That's right. When, uh, when they were leaving Exodus, they were leaving slavery, bondage, terrible... And the intentions of God was to take them into the promised land, which was rest. It was a type and shadow of the garden. I'm going to say a bunch of theological doctrine stuff, and you're just going to have to look it up or talk to me later or or just suffer it. But we we were created, mankind was created to live in the eighth day. We were created to live in the eighth day. In seven days, God made everything and then he rested. The intention were for all of us to live in paradise in the eighth day. The day of rest. Forever. Forever. This is why people that get all uptight about the Sabbath, this invasion of Judaism into Christianity is laughable. These are people that don't know the New Testament at all. Because the Sabbath is not a day. The Sabbath is a person. His name is Christ. (laughs) It's supposed to last forever. We're supposed to get into the Sabbath and stay in the Sabbath. That's why Jesus was fussed at for healing on the Sabbath, and He was healing on the Sabbath. Because in the Sabbath is healing. In the Sabbath is freedom. We were, we were created to live in the eighth day, and the reference of that is the rest of God. God didn't make us to be humans' doings. He made us to be human beings. We're supposed to be at rest in Him. Now, that doesn't mean go and take a nap. That's physical carnal rest. In this, it's rest as in you are seated at the right hand of God the Father. Seated. It's talking about that, that royal position where the king is at rest in his power and his authority. 
It's talking about what a lawyer does when he rests his case. It doesn't mean that he he's so wiped out that he has to like pass out. I need to rest my case because I can't say one more word. You ever met a lawyer? They got lots of words. It, it's like what an artist does when he rests his brush. When he looks at what he just created, what he just painted, one more brush stroke would literally ruin it. And then he rests his brush. So when it says that God rested on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was pooped, because he had made all creation. Like, oh man, I just made the universe. I need a nap. God never sleeps nor slumbers. He, he's not worn out. Listen, he made the universe with words. <laughs> it's not like he was... The hardest thing God ever did was salvation. Creating the universe was just, you know, I mean, he was just speaking stuff. No big deal. It took his arm. The, the scriptures say that he created with his hand, but he had to use his arm for salvation. What took salvation was took the entire strength of God. The power that's on the inside of you through the resurrected Christ is greater than the power that it took to create the universe. But because we don't acknowledge it, or we don't know it, or we won't really believe it, then we're trapped in this mortal, uh, powerless, authorityless existence. Miserable. This rest is what all of the references in the Old Testament. And I, I don't, I don't know how deep to take you on this, but the Old Testament was the shadow, and Christ was the real. First Corinthians chapter three says this. Second Corinthians chapter four says this. That everything in the Old Testament was written for our admonition, so we could learn and grow. And we've turned the Old Testament into like the actual laws and theology and rules, and then the New Testament is kind of like the, the fluttery part. No, it's, the, it's the, actually the other way around. The Old Testament was a shadow. The New Testament is the real. Christ is the authentic. <laughs> Moses was a shadow of Christ. Joshua was a shadow of Christ. Joseph was a shadow of Christ. Melchizedek was a shadow of Christ. They were all shadows of Christ. Christ is the real. I would hope for those of you that know me, if you were, you know, a shadow can tell you a lot. There's a lot of things that you can get from a shadow. You, if I was, if I was standing here and someone was sneaking up behind me because we got lights everywhere, I could tell that someone was coming up behind me because I'd see their shadow. I could tell if they got a gun or if they got a, you know, a cake. A shadow can tell you a lot. They can tell me if it's tall or short or big or, you know, is it a kitten or a lion or... Shadows can tell you a lot. And I, if you don't have the real, shadows are really, 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 really important. But if you have the real, if I walked up to you and you fell on the ground and you hugged and kissed my shadow, I'd be a little hurt. <laughs> But a lot of people do that. They fall on the ground and they hug and kiss the shadow. The Old Testament, the type and shadow. Christ is the real. When the real is come, the old passes away. So you still use the shadow because there's still things that the outline of the shadow can tell you, but Christ is the authentic. 
And so the rest that is supposed, that we are supposed to have is this rest in Christ. We are in Christ. We were not in Christ. Now we are in Christ. Christ is the healer. If you are a born-again person in this room, and I, and I know not everybody's born again, and that's fine. We can fix that, or you can wait until you feel like it needs to be your time. You, you have freedom in this place. If you are born again in this place, you do not need healing. You need to manifest health. Healing is for people that are outside of health. 100% of the people that Jesus healed in the Gospels were sinners. Unborn again. Going to hell. Healing was absolutely necessary for them. But one of the things you'll find is that when you cross over, after the day of Pentecost, I've said this lots of times, and I've taken tons of flack over it, and I don't give a rip. Until someone can prove me wrong, which they can't. In the New Testament, once they cross the day of Pentecost, there is no record of any kind of any of the disciples or apostles ever needing healing. Period. If you're in Christ, you're in health. Amen. <laughs> Exodus 15.26 says that, uh, that God, this is the all-powerful creator that Israel knew, this is one of the first times that he revealed himself as one of the names of Jehovah. And he revealed himself specifically in this time in Exodus as the Lord that healeth thee. The very last line. The Lord that healeth thee. Now in the Hebrew that actually says Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah is personal, intimate God. When he first revealed himself as Jehovah, it was, I am your God. This was personal and intimate. That's what Jehovah is. And then Rapha, which is translated, that healeth thee, is not, I don't agree with that translation. Rapha means health, or God's kind of life. So this is the personal God that gives you his kind of health. How many aches and pains did Jesus have? Man, I'm like a billion years old, these knees. I, I can't see you, Father. You know, the first thing to go is your eyesight. You have His health. His. This is Jehovah revealing Himself as, I will be your health. He doesn't want to be your healer. He's the healer for the sick. If you're sick, I would encourage you to get born again. You don't have to be sick anymore. You can be healed. Made whole. Sozoed. I know this is messing with folks. Because we... We've literally built massive denominations and there are preachers, God bless them, that they've made millions and millions and millions of dollars teaching Christians to be sick and then trying to get them to be healed. It's like big pharma. 
big pharma comes along and says, hey, what should we do? Um, I don't know. Let's put, uh, let's put fluoride in the water and in the toothpaste so everybody gets extra fluoride. All right. That'll make everybody sick. Oh, and then when they get sick of fluoride, well, let's, I don't know, you want to make Bayer? What do you want to make? Bayer, Tylenol? Let's make that. So when they get the headaches from the stuff that we gave them, then we can give them the medicine for the headaches. We'll be making money coming and going. We'll sell the fluoride and we'll sell the aspirin. And the church comes along and says, well, that's a good idea. Uh, here's what we're going to do. You know about all the homeless people in Lena? Did you see them everywhere? Millions of them. We, we're going to take up an offering for homelessness and build a homeless shelter in Lena. Give! Give till it hurts. You're not really a Christian until you give good. And then I collect a million dollars because you guys are wealthy. And then I go build a homeless shelter. And then I spend 10 years trying to beg homeless people to come live in my shelter because there's no homeless people in Lena. So I created a problem that I had to convince you to give me money to create a solution for. And this happens all the time in churches. You know how many food pantries you can get to from right here in 15 minutes? Do you know how many food insecure people? That's what they call it now. It's politically correct. It's called food insecurity. When I was a kid, it was called hungry. And you could hear it. (laughs) You you heard it a lot. (laughs) Was that gas or hunger? It's now called food insecurity. From right here, within 15, maybe 20 minutes, you can get to 12 places to get food. That none of them keep a record of who comes, and they are not allowed to preach to you the gospel because they get the food from the government. But every one of them is a church. And I've served at them. I've helped them. And I will tell you that about 50% of the people that came to the food pantries that I served at were over 300 pounds. So are we helping or hurting If you are sick, Jesus wants to be your healer. But He would rather have you be brought into Him and let Him be your health. And I've seen thousands, maybe at this point tens of thousands, I don't know, I've lost track, but I've seen thousands upon thousands of people healed. And I can tell you that I would much rather have somebody sick come in here and hear the truth and let it change them and transform them so that they live in health and then they don't have to come to the altar every week to get something from some person because they feel like they're in a deficiency of what God has handed out for free. Once He gave you Christ, He gave you everything there was for you to have. You aren't deficient of anything. You are not lacking healing power. You're not lacking anointing. You're not lacking wisdom. You're not lacking strength. You're not lacking authority. You're not lacking power. You're not la- there is nothing that you lack. You have Christ. And with Christ, He is your all in all. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It says in Colossians 2. And you are complete in 
Him. In Him, you are complete. Complete people don't need to be healed. Let the Father be your health. And then healing will never be something you have to go and find ever again. This is rest. This is rest. Resting in His health. And you can do this with any of the principles that were atoned for. You can rest in peace. Peace is a place. It's a fortress. You can stay in peace. You don't have to have some peace during that one song, that one time, just on Sunday morning. You can just stay in peace because your prince is the prince of peace. You can stay in joy. You can literally walk around. You could actually be, I know, this is going to absolutely shock. This will melt the internet. But you can actually be in a good mood for the rest of your life. Amen. Y'all just clapping because I said it. Like, it is like, yeah, by faith, I'm clapping. You don't have to, (laughs) you don't have to have spiritual menopause. It's not okay. In fact, natural menopause isn't even okay. Got one believer. (laughs) Things in your body don't have to die. That's what menopause is, is that... Never mind, I'm not. (sighs) I stink at this stuff. (laughs) For we which have believed do enter into rest. Do. Well, I'm not in rest. I mean, I, I am messed up all the day. I'm always confused. I'm always in turmoil. It's always like on the inside of me. It's always this war. And it, okay. That's fine. You can have that. If that's what you want, you can have that. You're free. Or you can have this. It says that we which have believed do enter into rest. <laughs> Amen. Well, I'm not at rest. (laughs) I guess you just told on yourself, didn't you? (laughs) Now, this next, uh, these next two statements after the comma, this was him quoting Old Testament to prove the point. So I'm going to just remove it for a second. I'll put it back in for all you people are going to get freaked out. Steve's messing with the Bible. No, I'm just taking out the parenthetical statement so I can show you what he was trying to say. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So the rest that you enter into, it's not a rest that you worked to produce. See, in our world system, work 40, 50, 60 years, pay into your pension, do everything right, da, da, da. And then you get to rest, retire. Which, by the word, way, the word retirement is not even in the Hebrew. You should think about that. That's the world system. Work, 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 rest. The world system is TGIF. That's the world system. 
Work five days, and then you get a day off. Well, I'm not going to church on Sunday. It's the only day I can take the boat on the lake. Okay? It happens all the time. I invited someone to church the other day, and he's like, I can't come on Sundays. I'm like, why? He goes, well, I just can't. I said, why? Well, he's like, I do stuff on Sundays. I'm like, so do I. <laughs> I'm still doing stuff. Just at rest. He, he, it, to him, it was, I, he literally had the anti-Sabbath thing. Like, I can't go to church on Sunday. That would be me doing something I don't want to do on a Sunday. And Sunday is for me to do what I want to do. Well, I'm doing what I want to do. <laughs> for we which have believed do enter into rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is what God intended for His children from the beginning. This is why He placed Adam and Eve in the finished work of the garden. This is why He tried to convince Noah to help fix the world before they went off a spiritual cliff. And then Noah and his family got planted in a finished work, a freshened world. And then they jacked it up. And then you got Exodus, where He took His people... And he brought them into a finished work. A promised land. That had houses already built. Cities already built. Crops already planted in the field. Cows already mooing. It was all... They just had to walk in and like... Why would God do more for the people in Exodus that really were rebellious jerks than he would for you that was a humble, submitted, born-again person that received his son. Anybody? If he was willing to do that in the Old Testament shadow for the Exodus folks, why isn't he willing to do that to you? Why wouldn't he give you a paradise, a wide open place with houses that you don't have to struggle and grind to build? You you don't have to save for 40 years and then get a 40-year mortgage and then die with a mortgage. You know what mortgage means, right? It means deed to death. Mortgage. Deed to death. In verse 9 of the same chapter, it says, There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. This is waiting for you. Rest is waiting for you. Verse 10. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So if you get into his rest, you're done doing your works. So if you're not at rest, guess what? The Bible just implicated you. Well, I'm working, 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 working. Uh, stop. He already worked. Uh, look, I got all day. <laughs> this is what I do. You don't have to work for this. Now, it does say that we labor to enter into His rest, but that labor is to get our minds, to get our understanding in alignment with what God has said. And that's what I'm going to help do today. So Hebrews chapter 3, I I wrestled with this. I wanted to read all of Hebrews chapter 3 to really paint this picture about this rest that he said over and over and over and over and over and over. He kept trying to get 
His people to get into these finished works, to get into this opportunity for rest that He had for them. He kept trying over and over, and they kept refusing. They'd do it for a minute, and then wham, they'd nuke it. And then they'd get in the vehicle again and then ram it into a tree. And it was just over and over and over. And you can go look through, like the book of Judges is awesome as it relates to this. Because it's like God raises up somebody and then it's like, destruction. And then he raises up someone, destruction. And raises up someone, destruction. That's the shadow that most Christians follow. Well, I had a good day and then crash and burn. Bad week. Good day, bad week. Good day, bad week. And they thought, well, this is the cycle. Stop it! <laughs> it says that when Jesus came, this is in, in Isaiah, it prophesied of the coming of the Messiah. It says, when the Messiah's come, he would make low the mountains and exalt the valleys. If you bring low the mountains and you exalt the valleys, why are you riding the roller coaster of Christianity? Jesus literally came to make it smooth. Rest. Cruise control. I'm going to buy me an F-150 Lightning because I heard that Ford's making it so you can have auto drive. I'm going to go to California and preach the gospel and not even touch a steering wheel. They hit a button, take me to California and read my Bible. Might have to edit that. I'm going to I'm going to do a little bit of theology here for you but it's just to to prove where I'm going so everybody doesn't think I'm making stuff up. In the Greek the word for faith is the word pistis, P I S T I S. This is Hebrews 11:1 1, where it says now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is a substance It's an actual substance. The substance of faith is what made the substance of the universe. God released his faith with his words and his faith became substance that we call wood and earth and dirt and rocks. And you have the same faith that he has. So if you need some substance... Get to talking. Well, I've been talking to stuff and it ain't been making substance. Well, thank God, because I heard you talk to your kid and call him stupid. Thank God some of your words ain't making substance. And here's the thing. The reason that your words don't create like God's words create is because your heart is double-minded. And with the same tongue, bless we God and curse we man. And so you can't release substance. God actually put a little safety valve on your words. But if you curse long enough, if I call my kids stupid long enough, guess what they will become? If I call my wife an old battle axe long enough, guess what what I'll have one day? Almost, uh, I don't want to say. Often. Kay and I are laying in bed. And I'll stroke her beautiful hair. And I'll say, you are the one that my soul confidently trusts in. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. 
And in Proverbs 31, it says that her husband's heart doth safely trust in her. And my heart safely trusts in my wife. She has proven it. And I tell her that she is the bride. She has no blemish, no spot. And I tell her that she's perfect. And she laughs every time. And it irritates me. Because I've been doing it for years. And she still laughs. Because she thinks she's not perfect. But the thing is, is to her father and to her husband, she's perfect. And our opinions trump hers. And the father's opinion of you trumps yours. And you know what he says to you? You're righteous and truly holy. You've been healed by my son's stripes. That's what he says. You can argue with him, and you can laugh when he says it. I'm not really righteous and truly holy. You, you, you could say, it would be easier for you to just say, no, nah, God, you're a liar. But your heart would convict you, and so you can't say it, so you just laugh. You read things in the Bible, that's not for me. Healing's not for me, that's for some other person. That's just for the, for the amazing preachers like Pastor Steve. He's the one that gets to get healed, the rest of us schlubs. FYI, I was a schlub before I was a pastor. God loves schlubs. Faith is a substance. Jesus specifically talked about it when the leprous, the Bob just talked about these leprous folks. In Luke chapter 17, if you remember, ten lepers came to Jesus. Actually, they didn't come to Jesus because they weren't allowed to actually come to Jesus because they were of the most defiled. They were like, I don't know, Republicans. And so they had to stand on the outside. And they cried out, Lord, have mercy! Lord, have mercy! And Jesus acknowledged them. Ten lepers. And those of you that are all twisted up in healing doctrine and you got to just do everything right and you got to have all of your, you know, got to do the 47 things to be healed, this one will jack with you. He didn't touch them, and he didn't speak a word of healing of any kind to them. He didn't spit on them. He didn't throw holy water on them. He didn't cast anything out of them. He didn't put anything into them. He said, go show yourselves to the priest. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've healed someone by saying, go show yourself to your priest. Jesus did. They just, they were obedient. Okay. You know what obedience is? In Luke uh, 17, 14, uh, actually 19 is where, I, yep. Uh, Luke 17, 19, Jesus says, Your faith has sozoed you. That word made you whole is the word sozo. Your faith, your faith, sozoed you. The word sozo means heal, cure, prosper, protect, rescue, save. It's one of those divine words. Like it's like supercalifragilist. You know what I mean. It's like, it's like the word of all words. In fact, Jesus is called the soter, which is a derivative of the word sozo. 
which is Savior. Whenever time you say Savior, you're saying Sozoer. So what has He saved you from? Whatever you can mention that He saved you from, He is your Sozoer. So Sozo are the things that are happening because of the Sozoer, the Soter. So He said, your faith made you whole. Made you. Your faith literally created substance... And he said this to only the one that returned to give thanks. So the other ones got a form of sozo because they went away and they were cleansed. Their leprosy left them. But this guy, after acknowledging his leprosy, left him, turned back around, threw himself at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him and thanked him. And Jesus said, whoa, your faith made you sozo. Those folks got healed. You got sozo. The other folks had faith because they got healed. This guy got sozo. So the Greek word for faith is pistis. It's a noun. It's a substance. The adjective form of this word is pistos. So as an adjective, faith is the word um, is the word believed, or, I'm sorry, is the word faithful. So if a person has the noun of faith, then they are a faithful person. This is something that a lot of Christianity, those of you that got my, my encouragement on Thursday in our email, this is what I was talking about. Faithfulness is something that expresses the true, genuine nature, the noun of faith that is in your character. If I am truly a faith person, a believer, noun, then I'm going to have adjective, the descriptive qualities of faith, which makes me faithful. (laughs) Which means if I say it, I do it. If I tell someone I'm going to go somewhere, I go there. If I say I'm going to give you something, I'm going to give it to you. I'm faithful. I don't, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and say, well, I've had enough of Kay finding me another woman. That's not faithful. Praise God. Praise God. God don't wake up tomorrow and say, whoo, I've had enough of Jeff. (laughs) That guy. Whoo. He has got on my last nerve. No, praise God. (laughs) He ain't got a last nerve. I don't even know if he's got a nerve. (laughs) Hebrews 11.11. Because she, this is talking about Sarah, who was Sarai, changed by God into a faithful woman. Sarah judged God. Do you believe that's in the Bible? (laughs) You do because you're looking at it. You can judge God. In fact, I would encourage you to judge God. Judge him according to his actual true nature. Judge him faithful. It is an adjective that describes who God is. God is faithful. We sing about it in some of our favorite songs. God is faithful. Yeah, God is faithful. Well, you have the divine nature. So what are you? That was terrible. (laughs) What are you? Because you have the nature of your father. 
It's not something you got to work up. It's not something you got to strive and struggle to get or to become. It's actually something that you are and you in rest you live it. I'm faithful. I'm faithful. The verb form to believe is pistuio. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. And I don't know if I'm saying any of these words right, so if you know Greek better than me, shut up. <laughs> Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For those that come to Him must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. This is the word believe. This is the verb form. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That He that comes to God must believe. This is verb. This is action. He, those that come to him. I, when I was studying this, I've struggled with this pleasing to God thing. I'll be honest with you. Because I understand in the scriptures that God is pleased with us. But then I also understand that God is not pleased with us. And it's one of those, it's, it's one of those tensions And the Lord cleared it up for me the other day when I was studying this. He says, I'm pleased in you. I'm pleased by you. But I'm not always pleased by your actions. I'm pleased in you, but I'm not always pleased by you. And it became super clear to me. That he's pleased in my nature. He's pleased in who I am. And from my nature, I should be behaving, talking, operating my life in accordance with that pleasure, which means that my activities please Him as well. I don't want Him to just be pleased in my nature that Jesus has given me. I want Him to be pleased in the outflow, the fruit of my nature as well, so that He can be pleased by me and not just pleased in me. He that comes to him must believe that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And I know there's some people in this room that, that you're, right now you're struggling with this. You're like, well, I've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And I don't know if he's rewarded me. Let me ask you this. Do you really believe that he rewards those that diligently seek him? That's the first step. The second step is, are you actually diligently seeking him? Or do you just give him the capitular 90 seconds of reading the My Daily Bread verse every morning and then off to your kingdom you go? Amen. Just ask him. All of these words, pistis, pistos, pistuio, they all have a root word in the Greek. And I know that some of you are like, blah, 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 Greek. But this is important. Because all of this, faith, Believing, faithful, they all come from a Greek word, the derivative, the the root of all of these things is the Greek word pitho, P-I-E-T-H-O. And that root word pitho, most of the time in the New Testament was translated trust. Trust. And I'm not saying this to hurt nobody, I promise you. I won't even, I'll look at YouTube because they don't have plastic feelings. YouTube. You probably trust the chair you're sitting in now more than you do God. You better fix that. 
Ain't nobody come in here. And before you sat down in that cool purple chair, you checked all four legs. You got your level out on the floor, make sure the floor. You went down in the basement and took the ceiling tiles down and looked at the wood, holding up the chairs. Came back up, took your test hammer and hammered around, then sat down in the chair. Ain't none of you did that. But how many times do we do this to God? Well, I don't know if God's going to come through on this whole by His stripes I'm healed stuff. I mean, I've tried that. I know the Bible says give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. But I gave that one time. It didn't come back. Well, God bless you, Mr. Faithful. That one time you gave. Yep, you just... It's amazing because it's really hard in this environment where we live to, to convince people that this doesn't work. Because as soon as you drive away from here in five minutes, you're going to drive by a cornfield. How'd that get there? Some farmer who's way more ignorant than you took a perfectly good piece of seed and went and buried it in the dirt. Idiot. But we can't do that with our finances. We can't do that with our emotions. We can't do that with our words. We can't do it with our actions. We can't go give someone a kind word and expect people to be kind. We, won't, we don't go be friendly to people and expect people to be friendly. We're expecting people to be unfriendly, unkind, do terrible things to us, steal from us. We can't go give things to God and expect God to be like, wow, that was awesome. You planted a bunch of seeds. Watch how I make the harvest and my supernatural ability to take your seed and put it into dirt, dirt. And then make something beautiful that can keep producing and producing. How many times did God create corn? How many? One time. God created corn one time. And seven billion people on this planet benefit from the corn that God made one time 6,000 years ago. And we can't trust him with our money? I can assure you, the person trying to talk you out of trusting God with your money is not God. He's faithful. This Greek word, trust, Matthew 27, 43, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they actually used this to vile him. To condemn him. All the people standing down there, all of the naysayers standing at the foot of the cross said, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. (laughs) The funny thing is, is that in their condemnation, they were actually saying the truth. He did trust in God. He did have a promise. And it didn't look good. And he trusted the promise because he trusted his father. And in three days, his trust was reconciled. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey. Obey them that have the rule over you. 
I'm going to just say this real fast because I know how porcelain people are and their feelings are on their sleeves and they totally hate this kind of stuff in church. And so this is why a lot of the kingdom is not available to you. But there are people that God places in your life that are actually supposed to rule you. And I know that you hate that and you're American and you don't want nobody to tell you ever what to do, even yourself sometimes. God bless you. If you want to take this Bible, this verse out of your Bible, you're welcome to. I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. The Bible actually says that God places people in your life that are supposed to rule over you. Not rule, as in they're your boss and they're going to knock you in the head with a hammer, but to, to give you principles and ideas and concepts that are supposed to help disciple you, train you, and grow you into who you're supposed to be. The word obey is the Greek word pivo. Trust. You know, it is as rare as hen's teeth to go to a church today and under the unction of God, by the Spirit of God, to talk to someone who says that they trust the leadership of the church. Especially that pastor guy. He just wants our money. The word obey is the word trust. So if you can't trust and or obey the people that God put in your life, that God put in your life, how are you going to trust the one that put them there? You can't. I'm telling you, and I'm not being mean to nobody. I'm not even talking to anybody specific. I'm just telling you principles of the kingdom. If you can't trust the people that God sends to you, then you can't trust the sender. And it's become really cool to be anti-church now, and anti-church people, and anti-fivefold, and anti-everything, to just, wow, those people, I am the church. I'm going to go home, I'm going to sit in my closet, I'm going to have church by myself, because I don't need none of those people. I don't need nobody to have any church leadership over me. I don't need that old structure. Okay. Just remember that Jesus said that the gates of hell are going to be dealt with by that old structure called the church. So good luck with that. You and your one-man army out there against the gates of hell. Hope it works out for you. Jesus specifically said it's the ecclesia that's going to deal with the gates of hell, not the Christian. You can take that and get mad or get happy, but it's still in the Bible. Petho, them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. This actually blesses me because I'm a, obviously I'm a leader in the body of Christ. And I get... Here's something that those of you that have ever discipled anyone or ever been in, in places of leadership in the body of Christ, one of the things, if you're authentic, one of the things that you struggle with is watching people that you love destroy themselves. I would rather destroy me than watch people that I love be destroyed. I understand that concept of, of Jesus coming for people because of love. Because I love people and I have watched people destroy themselves. And it's like the actual, it's like I'm getting their pain watching them do what they're doing to themselves. And one of the things that you have to do in order to be long-term and successful in leadership in the body of Christ, in ministry, in, in discipling people, in growing and learning other people, even in parenting, is you have to be able to separate 
what the folks are doing from your love for them. Because I love folks, I want them to do the right thing. But if they choose to do the wrong thing, I'm not going to let their pain be my pain. I'm not going to let their hurts be my hurt. This is unprofitable for you. Do you see how unique this is? I used to think it's unprofitable for me, the people that I'm trying to help and trying to disciple and trying to grow, and they don't do it. It's like, oh, I have, I'm a sucky pastor. I have a terrible church because the people aren't doing the thing and the stuff. And then Jesus said one time, did you see my church? <laughs> Judas had that guy. Had a couple of those guys. Ace. Never mind. And the rest of them, Thomas, like, I don't know. Had some of those guys. James and John, they want to fight all the time. Had some of those guys on my board. (laughs) It's like, did you see my church? I'm like, yeah. If I didn't have the perfect church, why would you have the perfect church? (laughs) It's not like I was thinking I was better. But I was thinking I was better. And then this one set me free. It's unprofitable for those folks. If you don't do what the Lord wants you to do, that's not on me. That's on you. Amen. This is important. Trust is built in here. Pitho. To be profitable, you've got to trust that the way that you're being led by God and by the people that He's placed in your life, then it actually makes it profitable. I can tell you the tale of two cities in here. Because there are people that have been in this church for a long time, nine and a half years, however old we are. There's people that have been in here for nine and a half years that started at the same time as some other people. In fact, we just had, I won't say a name, but we just had, Pastor Bob and I were just in the yellow room and we just heard testimony of somebody who came to church here for a while. This was the greatest church ever. I was the greatest pastor ever. Every message was the greatest message ever. And every time someone tells me that, it like I'm like, oh, this is it. I mean, they'll be the next. They'll be the guy on Facebook on Tuesday saying that I shot their dog and molested their kid. I mean, that's, it's literally Sunday. I've actually had people quit the church on Tuesday after Sunday, sending me a card in the mail, telling me how amazing the sermon was, how awesome the church is, how amazing everything. I mean, just over. I still have the card. They quit the church on Tuesday. We didn't even have any services for them to quit from. I don't even know. What they, they quit like they quit on Tuesday. I got the card in the mail on Thursday. They quit before I got the card that they sent on Sunday for being amazing. I was like, this is ironic. But that that is how uh, that's how these things get into somebody's heart. That's that's how you a person can get broken in these things. It can be that quick. And I got news for you. Like if something happens that quick, it might not be God. I would at least think about it. The next verse is also has the word pitho. Let's see if we can find it. And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that pitho. In fact, in this verse, it's a pitho. A in front of a Greek word makes it the opposite. Okay, so if you're following me, the reason I did all this is because I want to show you. The Bible word for not obey 
not believe, not persuaded, is pitho with an A, which is the word trust. So the Bible says that disobedience is distrusting. The Bible says unbelief is untrusting. It all comes to trust. You trust, you obey. If you actually trust the person that says, hey, go outside, go in my car, and you can have everything in my wallet. I just told everybody my my wife is going to be very upset. Scratch that. Go out my truck and get the... (laughs) Dang it. We need to go to two services so I can have like the practice service and then the, so I don't say stupid stuff. Go into the, the magical, imaginary treasure chest that I'm using as a prop right here. Can you see it? Can you see it? It's, it's right here. Go in there and get out a bar of gold. If you trust me, you do it. If you don't trust me, you won't. Here's where I'm going with this. Rebellion or, or, or uh, disobedience, these, these aren't like activities like, well, I'm just not going to do what God... It's actually not trusting them. When the Lord called me, When the Lord told me to come back from Texas and plant a church. Uh, most of you don't know the testimony, and I don't, obviously don't have time to tell it. But I was, by definition of the word, disqualified for ministry. Disqualified. By definition, disqualified. And the Lord said, go home. Make disciples. I said, I'm disqualified. The Lord said, go home, make disciples. I said, I'm disqualified. And I gave them all the reasons I was disqualified. And they're legitimate reasons. One day, I can, I'll tell you all the testimony. I was legitimately disqualified. If I had been a Baptist, they wouldn't let me sweep the floors after church. That disqualified. I was that disqualified. A year of me telling the Lord that I was disqualified. A year. I was reading in Romans 8. <laughs> I was standing in my living room at 6338 Fallbrook Drive, Garland, Texas, facing the south where the fireplace was, holding my, my Bible, my Kenneth Copeland Reference Edition Bible that my mommy bought for me when I went to Bible college. And I was reading in Romans chapter 8, and in Romans 8.30 it says, He whom he's called, he has justified. Amen. And it dawned on me for the first time in my entire life that with his calling came the justification. 
if I tried to justify myself, I was unjust. If he justifies me, then he makes me just. And according to this verse, if he called me, he already did the justification part. And I was standing in the living room, and I read this verse. And I can't tell you what happened on the inside of me. But I became, in that moment, aware that the Father trusted me to do something for Him that I felt I was disqualified to do. And I closed my eyes and I was just overwhelmed by the love and the mercy of God. And I had one of only two visions I've ever had. And it wasn't an open vision. Those of you that know there's open and closed. Because halfway through the vision I opened my eyes and there was my fireplace. So I didn't go somewhere. I didn't translate to another place. I didn't... I had a vision, but it was so real that when my eyes were closed, I was there. And there was walking along the cliffs of a, I don't know, I guess like an Irish uh, ocean front. If you've ever seen pictures of them where they're like three, four hundred feet tall and they're these sheer cliffs. And at the top of them, there's this, this grassy, lush area. And I was walking on this path. Overlooking the ocean. I mean, it was just ocean. And it was the most beautiful ocean. I mean, it was blue. The sky was... These were colors. And, I mean, I knew that I was not on some earthly place. But I was walking on the edge of this beautiful, lush, green. And I became aware of the fact that I was holding hands... With Jesus. And for some of you, you probably understand what a guy might go through just having that initial thought you're holding hands with a guy. But I didn't have that because it was Jesus. And I was holding hands with Jesus and we were walking along the edge of this cliff. And he was just walking with me. And he was so... I mean, you could feel it. You could see it. He was everything, whatever adjective you got. I mean, it was just, it wasn't, man, it's so hard to explain. It was coming off of him like it was a force or a, an energy, and it was vibrating through me. And I just knew, like, it wasn't, he just wasn't like a great guy. I knew it was like he was heaven in a human body and we started talking and that's private you don't get to know and a lot of it had to do with my condemnation my shame my guilt and he was doing what Jesus does with those people and you can read it John chapter 8 Luke chapter 17 you can see the people that came to God that were condemned filthy rejected people and every single time Jesus raised them up justified them woman where are your accusers 
Right here, this picture. Woman, where are thine accusers? No man accuses me, Lord, neither do I go and sin no more. That's Jesus. And that's what he was doing with me while we were walking on the cliffs. And I was struggling still. And he stopped. And when he stopped, it kind of pulled me back. And so I looked back and he was looking at me in the eyes. And so I stood facing him and he took my hand that was in his hand and he raised it up between us. And he put his other hand over my hand. So that my hand was sandwiched between his two hands. And I was looking in his eyes and it was just radiating the love, the acceptance that I still was struggling to receive from him. And so I looked down. I looked away in shame or whatever. And what I looked on was his hands on top of my hands. And I could see my hand through his hand because of the hole. And I broke because he was trying to convince me to trust him. And I was struggling to trust him. And when I looked away in shame, I seen the hole that proves that I could trust him that was covering my hand. And I broke. I broke in the vision. I opened my eyes. And I had a fireplace, I closed my eyes, and I was broken. And he said to me simply, Trust me. Trust me. And in that moment, seeing my hand through his hand, I became aware, innately, somehow, I became aware of the stripes on his back. I became aware of the scars on his on, on his head from the thorns. I became aware of the glory that was coming off of his face from where they pulled the beard out of his face. I became aware of the fact that of any person that could ever say, trust me, he was really the only one that I could fully, fully trust. And everything in faith changed for me in that moment. Faith for me is no longer faith. Faith for me is trust. And whenever I doubt, I close my eyes and I see the hole in the hand covering my hand that proves that he who has promised is faithful. So when he says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, I trust him. When he says, by his stripes, you're healed, I trust him. When he says that you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, I trust him. Whatever promise he has for me, I trust him. Because I can see my hand through his hand. The hole that proved he's trustworthy. We have overcomplicated faith. We've turned it into actions and works and struggling and grinding. And it's not. It's a man. And he's trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. He is faithful. Please rise. I'd like to bless you. 
Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of His life-changing Word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the Beloved Family of God, and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.